When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's dot. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's really great to have W. Keith Campbell on the podcast. Campbell is a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, as well as the author of The Narcissism Epidemic, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself, and most recently, The New Science of Narcissism. He also has more than 120 peer-reviewed articles, and he lives in Athens, Georgia. Keith, so excited to talk to you today. Oh, it's fun to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. We go, uh, we go way back. I remember I was writing an article for psychology today. Do you remember that like 12 years ago on It has been a long time. We've been kind of talking about these issues of narcissism and the good side and the bad side and the you know the challenges. It's been a long time. Yeah, I really appreciated your your insights uh, on that article I was writing back then and then I've been blessed to to be a colleague of yours now. But I want to just jump into this this question of narcissism and what is it? What is narcissism? I feel like everyone says if they don't like someone, they'll say, "Oh, that person's such a narcissist." That's that's become the phrase for for anyone you don't like. Yeah. Well, if they're successful and better looking than you. Yeah, they're narcissists. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, that's the risk, you know. It's sort of the sort of meta narcissism as you use narciss someone else's narcissism as a defense against your own inadequacy. Um, yeah, it's a term that gets used a lot and it's usually sort of pejorative, but as you know, we think of narcissism like a personality, like a lot of personality traits as being really trade-offs. They have some good sides and some bad sides depending on context and situation. Um, 
But when we talk about narcissism in the field, we're talking about two different forms. The first being the individual different form of grandiose narcissism. You know, this combination of a sense of entitlement and need for admiration and attention seeking and maybe some ex exhibitionism, but also some drive and charisma and, and, and real ambition that goes with it. Kind of, kind of like driven antagonism or energized antagonism. And then there's this other form of narcissism we talk about, which is this more vulnerable form, which has the entitlement. I love that one. And, yeah, I know, it's this sense of entitlement. And, That's my favorite. You know, uh, <laughs> you, you think you deserve special treatment. You think you're important. But at the same time, there's some low self-esteem and some insecurity that goes with that. So you have two different forms of narcissism, one that's driven and really more effective in the world, but can do more damage because of that. And one that's more, uh, more depressive and a little more low self-esteem, that's a little more hidden and doesn't do as much damage to people, but is sadder and does more damage to him or herself. Yeah, thanks. There's these, these uh, merging models of uh, these three-factor models of narcissism that, that our research as well as other research teams confirm that there's these three factors. So it seems like entitlement is a thread that runs through both forms of narcissism. Yeah, it's really the center. So we sometimes say there's, there's two, two uh, faces of narcissism or two dimensions, this more grandiose form, this more vulnerable form, but underneath those are three factors. And sort of the key factor in both of them is this antagonism and, you know, callousness, sense of entitlement, self sense of superiority, sense of self-importance, and then with that key feature, you either get this more agentic or driven extroversion. And we use the term agency to mean like drive. So with the charisma and, and energy and, and ambition, and then with the more vulnerable form, you get the more, you know, neuroticism. So you get insecurity, low self-esteem, fragile self-esteem. And those three factors exist and they can exist together. So you can have people who are grandiose and vulnerable. You can have people who seem really, really energized and self-confident, but they also have some insecurity. So it gets more complicated. Yeah. I say to people, if, if you really you want to be a narcissist, it's much better to be a grandiose narcissist than a vulnerable narcissist. <laughs> if, if your yes. goal is to be a narcissist. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, the, the vulnerable form of narcissism is really challenging because you have a lot of these fantasies or illusions of being successful or important, but you're not really equipped to succeed. You're, you're low energy, you're insecure. I mean, that's a hard that's a hard set of skills to be out there and go out there and beat the world with. But if you're more grandiose and you're confident, you're full of yourself. I mean, those are great traits in the modern world to go out there and get noticed and get attention and make things happen. But you can just do that by being an extrovert, right? Like what is the yes. antagonism by you? Cause we, in our research, remember we parceled out the antagonism facet and we found that extroversion was really doing most of the positive prediction. Yes, and I, I think that's really important is that boldness, that extroversion, that's where it's predicting a lot of what we think are the good things with narcissism. So the number of connections on Facebook is largely driven by extroversion. The social likability that you, you have with narcissists initially is largely driven by extroversion. What you see with antagonism, though, are things like you make more money. So... So being antagonistic in, in hierarchical or status-seeking situations can be beneficial. Nice. You know, riding up in leadership, 
but it's only one way to do it. There's multiple ways to succeed and you can succeed based on extroversion and be a nice person. And dare I say, one can succeed as an introvert as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Lots you of say successful. That. I mean, there's lots. You know, oh, yeah, I, it shouldn't. Yeah, there's 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 lots of ways to skin the success cat. Um, the, the more narcissistic way is more being grandiose and attention seeking to bring people in. Um, but, you know, you can just do it with work ethic. You can just grind and be conscientious and keep your head down and really outperform people. So there's there's lots of ways to get ahead. Just that the narcissism is the more showman. Techniques. Yeah. And, and also, obviously, not everyone wants to get ahead. They'd rather get along. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a yeah. I love those terms too, the old Karen Horney. But it, but a lot of that is that I know you're. But a lot of it's selecting. You're like, who wants to have this job? And like all the narcissists, are like we do. And then you get some other people like, yeah, I want to do some good in the world. I yeah. want it too. But whenever you're ever searching for people who want power, or status, or success, you're always getting a few more narcissists in your search. Yeah, that's a great point. So, what is the narcissism recipe? I, you know, it's, it's kind of what we're talking about. I, I think, and I don't know if we're the same in this, but I think of personality traits as really being well described by sort of the big five and the facets. No, the I think five. it's the Meyer Briggs all the way. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, I, know, I, know you're, I know you're a classicist. And I don't want to. <laughs> I'm joking. I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like the Meyer Briggs as a tool. I think yeah, it's yeah. kind of fun. No, it's not that scientific. Um, I wouldn't use it for, yeah, not a, not really for the, for the research. Um, but I'd like to think of these basic traits as like ingredients in, in a recipe. And we tend to use the big five sort of like, you know, we use, you know, carbohydrates and proteins and spices and stuff when we make food and we can combine these in interesting ways to make different traits. And when you combine this, you know, this agentic or driven extroversion with this antagonism and willingness to manipulate people and knock them over to get, get your own ends. It's an interesting it's an interesting recipe for an interesting kind of person. If it was somebody who was just mean but wasn't really extroverted, that's another kind of per recipe. It's not as interesting, but it's another recipe and it really could be a recipe for narcissism. So I like to think of how we can mix these traits up to get different ingredient profiles, but and that keeps me from thinking that somebody nar is narcissistic is somehow completely different from somebody who's got another personality profile. They're all similar. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think it's also probably important to point out that, you know, within the Big Five framework, you have aspects and then you have facets. And the two aspects of extroversion are assertiveness and enthusiasm, positive emotions. It seems like this grandiose narcissism is more tied to the agentic, assertive aspect of extroversion, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, I really like breaking things down into aspects when you talk about narcissism, because this aspect is really key. The more sociability or positive emotionality is great, but it's not really a core feature of narcissism. It's, it's really, it's really a nice trait to have if you want people to like you. And you want to be happy. <laughs> it's the, it's the number one, the number one predictor. Yeah. Of life satisfaction. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, as you could tell, we, we, we really can get nerdy here today. So this is, this is good. I like this. You know, what are the primary goals and motives of narcissists? And, and I'm being a little bit wary using the term narcissists because you're, we're yeah. talking about a personality perspective. So those who score high in narcissism, it's not as sexy. Yeah. It's not as sexy, is it? Those who score above it's two standard deviations above the mean. 
on a narcissism personality questionnaire. Yeah, I, I, yeah. To be clear, we're not talking about a personality disorder. We're using the term narcissist same way you use the term like extrovert. It's it's a placeholder for what you just said, high on the profile. You know, something that's really interesting about narcissism, and as opposed to a lot of traits, is that it it involves a lot of self regulation, mm. uh, meaning that. People in narcissistic uh, involved have goals that reinforce their ego, reinforce self-esteem or the positivity of themselves. We, we say self-enhance. So when you look at somebody who's narcissistic and you look at how they act, a lot of it is serving the master goal of making themselves look good, have high status, be important. So what are those goals specifically? And if you really boil down the literature, it's, it's sex status and stuff. Stuff? So narcissistic. Stuff, materialism, uh, having a having a fancy car, having a fancy watch, having fancy clothes, having a trophy house. I mean, so we, so it's 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 a it's a certain form of materialism. It's not being a hoarder. It's you know it's collecting status goods and using status goods to self-regulate. I mean, this industry is built around narcissistic status regulation via buying products. Oh, for sure. You know, and obviously, you know, status is a big one, social standing, social status, leadership is one, but it can be popularity, it can be being a cool kid, it doesn't have to be being a leader, um, and and sex. So Narson predicts a lot of short-term mating and fidelity, what kind of things. But you can be interested in short-term sex and not be a narcissist, right? So you can do all these things and be not, not a narcissist. They tend to gravitate together. They tend to correlate. And when you start, you know, you look at a picture of Napoleon Bonaparte and he's on a horse and he looks awesome and he's conquering the world and he gets somebody to paint it at the same time because just conquering the world wasn't enough. He needed a picture of it. That's when you start, ah, this stuff's all feeding together. You know, there's some narcissism here. But little bits and pieces don't have to be. And even something like vanity could be used for something else. It could be used for signaling, you know, social status or maybe not just membership in a social group, perhaps. You know, I always dress well because it shows I'm a good member of society. It, it, there could be different reasons for this thing. It could be a uniform. So things are always more complicated than they seem. They, I love, well, that's a very profound statement, I, that, that I, last I, sentence. That's to you. I mean, <laughs> it's not usual <laughs> stuff, but. That's just well, yeah, it is complicated because it's a multidimensional construct. And at some point when you just talk about some of the facets and isolation of the others, you start to lose the narcissism mm. aspect to it. I feel like, you know, there is the core entitlement, then there's the antagonist. But for instance, vanity, people just like to look themselves when they pass a mirror. I think a lot of people probably <laughs> score high in that and maybe don't necessarily score high in the others. Yeah. There's some that seem a little bit more tangential. I the, feel vanity, like. the vanity um, questions, though, are almost like I like to look at myself in the mirror. It's really it's not just checking yourself out, which can be neuroticism or just, you know, just making sure you, don't, you look presentable. It doesn't have to be it just, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to look like you have a job. I mean, I, I sorry, I, I walk I walk into the barber and they're just like, hey, homeless Jesus. You know, I'm like, eh, I should have paid attention for a while. Um, so there's a lot of reasons you look in the mirror, but with narcissism, there's that enjoyment of it. With the grandiose narcissism, there's enjoyment of looking in the mirror. And so vanity has been central to it, I guess, since the myth of narcissist has fallen in love with his own reflection. Gotcha. But yeah, it, it, it's there, but it isn't, and it's not central to the, con well, people narcissistic do look better. They tend more to make 
more effort on appearance. They make more effort to make their social media appearance look good. Um, yeah, it's there. It's there. Let's talk about gender differences for a second, because um, there's this cultural narrative that men are entitled bastards and and women are angels. <laughs> Perfect yeah. angels. Yeah, non-overlapping distributions. Yeah, yeah. Works. But, yeah. but that's yeah. not what the science suggests yeah. when you look at the nuance. There's more to the story, right? Science never says that. No, um, with narcissism you find... Uh, a difference in grandiose narcissism where men are a little bit higher, and I think the correlation is about 0.3, 0.25. Maybe you've looked at this more recently, Scott, but it's not a big D29. But the R would be about 0.15. Yeah, that, okay. So I, I inflated that by an order of two. <laughs> so it is a, so a D of about 0.29. So that's a small effect. Um, when you look at vulnerable narcissism, I don't think you find much nothing at all. Nothing, um, nothing. Yeah, I, I was surprised actually. Um, I thought maybe females because because just because of neuroticism, there's a gender difference. Mode. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that would make sense too. It almost maybe the two poles are kind of pulling at each other, and you get yeah. kind of equalized. Maybe yeah. Difference. The the guys are a little more hot, a little more antagonistic, and and it equals out. Yeah. Well, neurotic and kind of vulnerable narcissism imbalances maybe because yeah the, when you look at just psychological entitlement it's a small benefit to men but that d is about 0.2 so these are mm. is that right scott am i too am i i i just i mean i did this paper and i can't even remember it's very small well the the, the exploitation slash entitlement facet in particular that's the one that did show the uh, d equal 0.29 that's that's the deagle. I'm thinking like the classic PES psychological entitlement scale. Okay, cool. Yeah, this is other research other than that meta analysis. Yeah, yeah, that's about point. Yeah. But anyway, these effects are pretty small. Um, there is something that they've talked about in the literature in the '90s about you know women should be more entitled, so they ask for raises more, and that that might explain mm. some difference in in perform in job salary. I don't know if that's true. Um, but other than that, I don't see huge differences on on narcissism at the uh, at the trait level. When you start looking at disorders, you know, when you start looking way up the continuum, you're going to find more men diagnosed as MPD than women by about three to one. But that's at the clinical level. Wow. Okay. Well, that's really important information because uh, we do know that uh, things that may seem like small differences between males and females at the center of the distribution. Uh, the tails can actually have huge, huge impact on society. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Be different at the both high and low tails. We know that the male variability hypothesis, you know, with other things, traits like intelligence and, and other traits, you know, there's greater variability. So it, it seems like maybe something similar is going on there with narcissism as well at the very, very extreme. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a variability difference and that's, um, Literally, some of these analysis yeah. on this, and I forget. But I, I don't know if there's a variability difference. I should, should have looked at that. We just don't look at that as a matter of course in a lot of these things. Mm. But there is a mean level difference, and a small mean level difference, you know, at the extremes, at the tails, can become a much bigger difference. If you're looking at 1% of the population as having NPD, narcissistic personality, or 2%, you're at the very high end of the tails. Plus, there might be some diagnostic bias to diagnose men more than women. So you can get big differences at extremes with small average differences. 
on the other end of the spectrum, there's not more males at the very, very low end of NPD. Not that I've ever right. seen. I mean, usually okay. they, the, the trait they compare it to in the cluster B would be something like borderline and where you'd get a little bit of the reverse, which with much more women diagnosed than men. And that that's the personality disorder that's got a lot more neuroticism in it, neuroticism in it than narcissism. Okay, wait, this is really interesting. There's, there's, there's a lot of implications to what you're just saying. So it seems like there may be gender difference at the tails in vulnerable narcissism that we that are not showing up at the, uh, so maybe we need to look at a different level of analysis. Or, the gender yeah, there. or they're diagnosing vulnerable narcissism that's more extreme as borderline personality disorder. Yeah. If you go back to the old psychoanalytic stuff and the, you know, Kernberg and Kohut and the, you know, structure of oh, self yeah. idea, these object, you know, even the object relations ideas, those two those two diagnoses, NPD and BPD, borderline and narcissistic, are seen as very related. They're so strongly correlated. I mean, but the questionnaires, you know, are like 0.90 or... Well, with the vulnerable side, yeah. Yeah, the vulnerable and borderline, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so common. So anyway, I think that that's interesting. Maybe the gender differences um, are more pronounced for both grandiose and vulnerable in, in opposite directions at the extremes at the tails and anyway i i just i'm thinking of looking into that more <laughs> now yeah so what are the four triads <laughs> oh those triads are really interesting so so this idea popped out by you know del Paulus, and i don't know where this idea like i don't know where i haven't talked to him about where he came up with it but this idea of a dark triad of personality traits in this dark triad was a combination or collection of psychopathy, um, factor one psychopathy, um, grandiose narcissism, and uh, Machiavellianism, which is this trait which has to do with manipulativeness and willingness to exploit people. And so those traits were called the dark triad because they all shared this trait of antagonism. So this core antagonism was the darkness. So antagonism becomes a dark triad. So then, um, later, talking about same, some of these issues with borderline and vulnerable narcissism, you know, Josh and I with some of our students looked at it, and it seems like you could make another triangle, which is more vulnerable dark triad, triad which yes. has to do with the vulnerable narcissism, factor two psychopathy, which is a more impulsive, you know, it's this more impulsive form, and, and, uh, and vulnerable narcissism. So you can have that factor. And then there's this more energized group. You say, well, let's not go off that. Let's not go off antagonism. Maybe let's think about, let's think maybe about the extroversion and grandiose narcissism. What are traits that link to that? And there you start getting narcissism and fearless dominance and, and uh, boldness and, uh, and hypomania, kind of this low level nice. mania. Um, and those traits kind of hold together, but they they have that that extroversion is kind of what drives them. And then there's the light triad, which is what you did. What's that? It's for yours, man. It's basically the and I can't remember them because it's I thought it was like Kant riding a horse, Kantianism, or sort of humanism. I mean, it's, I, I I don't dig this this faith in humanity, faith in humanity stuff. I can't even get in my head. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's interesting yeah. because I think that's really important because it's saying like, let's not look at just the, you know, let's not say, you know, everything's dark or zero, but let's try to look at different ways you can be bright. 
And there are different ways you can take this more, I guess you'd say, low antagonism and bring it into these different traits. So I think that's a pretty interesting idea. And these, yeah, I was going to say these triads are all sort of arbitrary structures. You don't, there's nothing magic about them, but they're they're useful to think about how traits work together. And, and a lot of the traits that sound different can predict similar things. Now, you just mentioned three triads, which is appropriate because we're talking about triads, but what's the fourth one? Yours, the light triad. You only mentioned three, the vulnerable dark Not triad, the energized. Energized and dark triad. Classic dark. Oh, the dark, the classic. classic dark. We should call that the triad cl- classic. Yeah. <laughs> the classic, <laughs> which which now some psychologists have said is like uh, the there's a dark core that's even, you know, <laughs> what the heck? It's just antagonism, right? Antagonism, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you can fight it over what flavor antagonism it is. Yeah. But, but darkness is kind of trade antagonism and different yeah. manifestations. Darkness is darkness. It's I almost view the D factor as like the G factor of intelligence. You can get indifference of the indicator. It was a, a Charles Spearman principle. You know, at almost a certain level, it doesn't matter what more indicators you include in the factor, mm. <laughs> a uh, latent factor. It's still the same latent factor. I actually hadn't thought of that, but I like that way of thinking about it. Yeah, and I think this darkness just comes up. And then people are like, well, we've got a dark triad. Oh, we've got a dark tetrad. Oh, we've got a dark, you know, right. and then we do all the Aristotelian solids and darkness. And, you know, these, these, <laughs> these structures are out there, but... yeah. I think it's probably just the big five, but but what's interesting is how we take these you know these basic big five traits and why what becomes important in our culture. What traits are we talking about? How do we what complex traits do we build, and why don't we have a trait that describes somebody who's open and antagonistic, or do we? Do we need what exactly? I don't know. Is there a trait for somebody who's you know open and antagonistic? Do we have? That's a really interesting point. You know, it's interesting you raise a point just about how, you know, we have general population level correlations, but then we have those who buck the the trends and they have unique configurations of the big five. And I've always been fascinated with that. For instance, there's been a construct recently, research paper on the dark empath. (laughs) So that's another example of like... Yeah, that's even farther. uh, Yeah. Yeah. You don't tend to see those go together, but they identified a certain leading class of the population that... Um, high antagonism, but also high like empathy, like ability to to figure ability. out prey. Yeah. You know, like a cat well, with a mouse kind of thing. Or is I think they actually also have they 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 feel it. Uh, they, I think they care. Um, you know, I don't know. I it, it's it seems paradoxical, but I think it's kind of related to this pathological altruism uh, work I'm doing as well. Um, research that I that I published on recently showing that uh, helping can come from a profoundly selfish place, you know, profoundly like ego boosting, ego boosting place. Right. Seeking. For sure. But if they're a dark empath, does that mean they like really care, but they're still mean or what is that? Who is that person? <laughs> who is a dark empath? It's a good, it's a good question. I, I've been trying to wrap my head around that, yeah. that one, uh, that paper. I could send you the paper and see what you think. I, I wouldn't begin to say I have all the answers. I fully wrap my head around it, but it's, it's an interesting, they, they did identify that some people do kind of, it's almost similar in the sense that my colleague Craig Newman and I found um, when we did latent class analysis, there, there are certain people who do score high on the dark and the light. They're mixed. 
Oh, and, and that yeah. makes sense. You know, there's those characters, yeah. and, and Joseph Campbell talked about this, these characters that were sort of psychopathic but altruistic. And yeah. like James Bond being an example, or like the Harrison Ford in Star Wars, that's kind of like, I look out for myself only, but, you know, it comes down to it, I'm kind of going to do what's good for everyone. So are these combination people that are really interesting characters, and, and they come up in literature probably because they're interesting um, yeah, just because things correlate, there's plenty of people that they don't, these traits don't go together in. And sometimes they're super interesting people. Super interesting. I think those are the, those are the ones I like to hang out with. Yeah, they're kind of weird. <laughs> I love it. I think I'm like that. And you know, like, I'm like autistic and schizophrenic. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just a combo too much and too little yeah. dopamine. I got, I got, I got mania and detail oriented, you know, uh, geekiness. So it's all. Anyway, or I should say hypomania, yeah. because which is different. It's a different thing. It's a personality trait. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I I can relate to weird juxtapositions of of traits, and I think that's what makes makes us interesting as a species. Yeah, probably. and I think a lot of creativity comes out of that combination of of that sort of that tension between traits, and it, it can be creative, but it's also always a little more challenging. I mean, it'd be easiest to be kind of average. You know, you fit in the seat, you fit in the car, you have, your personality fits. Yeah. It's easier, but if you're weird and you pull it off, it's sometimes more interesting of a ride. Yeah. Well put. Well, so let's go to relationships because this is a topic, relationships and narcissism. It's a topic you've written, you've written a whole other book, you know, about uh, when, what is it, when he, when she loves a man who loves himself or something? Yeah, when you love a man who loves himself. Yeah, that was, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, it was, um, I love that title. It was a while ago. I, it, you know, it's really in grandiose narcissism. You know, the, I, I, it's amazing how much we've learned in the last decade or so about the trait, but yeah, narcissism. I, lo- I love that book though. I love that book. It's a big issue for relationships. I mean, narcissism yeah. is a problem. Yeah. Now, I get way, way more women emailing me saying my ex-husband was a narcissistic bastard than I get men emailing me. Men don't seem to email me saying my Our wife husband. was a narcissistic, uh, crazy person. Now, why why is that? Well, I'll tell you that I was, first I'm going to say there's an exception to that. I've run across her in marriages, in divorce. I've heard, you know, divorce cases where guys have just been thrashed, you know. So, th- so it does happen. Yeah. But... Uh, most of the time I am, I hear exactly what you do. It's women complaining about men primarily, and probably that's because men are a little more narcissistic, but also because of social roles we have, you know, men are out there. If they're working more, they're more driven, they can get away with more stuff. They're causing more problems. Um, can be just links with male mating strategies. Men are much more likely to be unfaithful, but maybe that's even changing. Scott, you've probably looked at those data more than I have. The infidelity data with men and women might be equalizing a little bit. Um, yeah, when you go down that rabbit hole of research, you you see a lot of things that you realize are so different than the narrative uh, that's put forward in our society. Yeah, and then and then you almost don't want to even talk about it. That's why I sort of mention it because I'm like, I just know there's something weird there that I don't. You know, I don't, like there's a whole population of of uh, women who've been identified who just love. Uh, uh, seeking out married men for sex. They, they that's the fetish. So there's always rabbit holes <laughs> within rabbit holes. What are you gonna do with that? You what know? are you gonna do with that? Well, I mean, I, I bet it would correlate with narcissism. 
You know, I bet yeah, if maybe. you, I bet if you coral, if you found that latent class of people or whatever, that would they would have a higher average narcissism score. Um, maybe, yeah. But yeah, it's usually you know, and the other thing is, I don't know if this is true, but I just it, I get the sense when I was talking to people about relationships a lot is women were more dialed into the relational process, and men were like, yeah, I you know, I like my wife, it's good. And they they weren't as, they weren't thinking about it all the time, you know. Hmm. That's just that was my sense writing the book because I had the same experience you did. But again, I've talked to plenty of men who've had terrible experiences with narcissistic wives. Yeah, maybe men aren't as uh, open uh, about it. Uh, it's not as in a way. It's it's almost more socially sanctioned. Yeah. To be a woman and say, uh, it's like cool to be a woman and say men are so narcissistic pigs. But, you know, do you want to be that guy who goes on Twitter and says women are narcissistic, crazy people? Like, do you want to be that guy? Yeah. And all my wife was doing was talking about how, how attractive she was and how she wanted to go out and got attention. Yeah. And then she was the cutest person in town. And you think guys would care? They'd be like, people will say, play a violin, play me a violin. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the narrative yeah. is probably a little harder, too. This would yeah. be a great research question. If there's any young kids out there, young aspiring researchers looking into some of this, it's kind of. I think it'd be a great. It'd be, it'd be a really great, great research topic. Um, but I, I think you know, just keep going back to the gender differences research. The reality of the matter is that it, it's not as uh, narcissism doesn't go across gender uh, gender lines as much as we make it out to be. You know, and there's narcissism comes from lots of different stripes and yes. sizes and. And also lots of good people on both sides. Wait, no, I should <laughs> No, but I, but I mean, I think, you know, think about it this way. When we've looked at a lot of the narcissism findings, we find men and women are different. Men are a little more narcissistic. If you look at things that have to do with, you know, being less committed in relationships, in gen- men are, well, I shouldn't even say men are usually a little less. Infant, you know, desired number of sex partners, men are more. Um, that, that'll replicate. And so you find those gender differences, but you don't really find gender interactions, meaning narcissistic Mm. men are sort of just like narcissistic women, just a little more narcissistic and a little more into infidelity. But they're kind of they kind of work the same narcissism, at least from from the work we've looked at in those samples, seems to work pretty similarly for men and women. Uh, You found um, a, a study a finding that a long time ago, which I wonder if it still replicates, but you find that in relationships, there's a point like a two year or, or, or nine month point. Yeah. A, you know, I, I remember a graph where all the shit hits the fan. Yeah, it was like, it, I remember it was like six to nine months somewhere in there where kind of things just start to fall apart. Yeah. Cause the, cause you know, in our culture, you date people because you're, you find them attractive and they're exciting and and so you meet people and, and people who are attractive and exciting that you meet when you're at a bar, or, you know, online because they're good at presenting themselves online. Those people are going to have uh, more narcissism than yeah. if you met them by a random draw or if you let your parents pick them out for you. So you end up meeting people who are narcissistic and you start these relationships and they're, and they're often very positive because you're dating and dating somebody who's sort of energetic and aggressive and self-important can be kind of fun. If you're just going out and doing stuff, you're not sitting there talking about your feelings. But over time, relationships usually move from the more extrinsic and more exciting to something that's more committed and internal and, and caring and empathetic. 
boring. Well, boring. If, no, I'm if, joking. I, I I'm know, joking. I mean, boring if you're self-centered and narcissistic and shallow. But kind of nice if you want to have a long-term committed relationship with somebody. So that that transition is where things start to break. So what does the research show on where not, whether or not narcissists and narcissists go together? Do they go well together? It, oh, in a bunch of studies, there seems to be if you find anything, it's a small positive correlation between partners' narcissism scores. So people are more grandiose, have partners are a little more grandiose. Um, but there isn't a lot. I mean, I can't find really stable findings that say, look, if you have this combination of a high grandiose partner and a low grandiose partner, you're going to get this. And this combination will lead to this. I just don't have enough data that I'm comfortable with giving an answer to that. Wow, so no one's really done like a meta-analysis on that. They're, they haven't, and it's hard to get the wow. marriage samples. And, you know, so you end up with marriage studies that are, you know, you find a big data set. Like Justin Lagner had some cool work come out on this, looking at it over time. And, uh, you know, Mietje Bach and some of those guys over in, in Germany have had some cool work on relationships. So we're seeing some of these processes happen. And it also could be that it's that, you know, the extroversion piece is really useful at the beginning, and then not so useful as it goes, but the but the disagreeable piece of narcissism doesn't really matter at the beginning and becomes negative over time. So it could be this the sort of the factors of narcissism work differently across a relationship. Good, really good point. Guy, we're so, nerding out here. I can't, I can't what do you what do you say? We are nerding out. I'm like, are we at a lab meeting? <laughs> this is the psycho. This is what well, this is what I think is unique about the psychology podcast. I hope people find that unique about the psychology podcast. Sounds like a lab meeting, listeners. Yeah, yeah, they get the inside scoop, you know, yeah. on on this stuff. Not this. Uh, I don't. I don't like this sugary sweet. Uh, <laughs> presentation of science sometimes it would be cool uh, to really look at those three factors and narcissism get a really large sample i mean this is the hard yeah. part get a large sample follow them through relationship formation you know maintenance development i mean if you could really trace that um, need a 2.3 million dollar grant from somebody who's not going to give it to us <laughs> just <laughs> but that would be great it would be great great research yeah yeah, ideally we'd have these huge studies going on, and there'd be federally funded relationship studies, and the federal government would have ten million a year, and we'd follow these people. But well, speaking of the federal government, uh, the next topic I wanted to talk about was leadership and narcissism. Now, you must get asked all the time, right? Like um, Trump, 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 narcissism. Do, I mean, does everyone keep bringing that up? Yeah, yes, except now I think people are tired of talking about politics and I'm trying to, you know, rock. it's exhausting. Well, I, I just makes people unhappy. And, and, um, but uh, Trump is an interesting case because, you know, after the election, we went back and this is Cortland Hyatt, one of uh, Josh Miller's students who went back and, and looked at, um, looked at profiles of narcissist of Trump, um, made by, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton supporters. So they, they, we had people rate the president based on the 30 facets of the big five. So we got facet level ratings um, from the two different camps. And then we're able to convert those facets into traits. So you're able to convert them to see how well they match onto narcissism or psychopathy or any other thing we wanted. And it turns out that both 
Trump supporters and his detractors see him as narcissistic in terms of his basic structure. He has a bold personality. It's larger than life. He puts his names on buildings. He flies around in a plane with his name on it. He has, you know, trophy wives. He's, he, you know, he lives in a, in a penthouse. He's kind of got the whole narcissism thing down. He's a, he's a reality television star, for God's sakes. I mean, he's, he's kind of got the whole pack. He's got the royal flush. I mean, a developer is a reality television star with a building and with Tiffany's in the basement. I mean, they're in the downstairs. It's crazy. But the difference is that people who support him say, yeah, he's got a big, strong personality, um, but he's capable of getting the job done and he cares about us and he's our guy and he's going to make the world better. Even though this is how he structured, this is what it takes to get things done. How do you think Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and you know, FDR succeeded. They weren't little babies. People who don't support Trump say he's got this narcissistic personality structure. He's completely out of control. He's incapable of doing things. He's only operating for his own business and his own interest. And he's going to be an incredibly destructive force and blow up the world. So you have two different sides seeing the exact same person and seeing the narcissistic traits but they frame them differently because they set them differently in the other big five traits, basically. They, they set them in high, con high conscientiousness or high competence or low conscientiousness and low competence. So it's, it's a different perspective of the same style. But what isn't in doubt is that he obviously scores sky high on lots of facets of grandiose narcissism. Oh, yeah. And, and his profile yeah. is very narcissistic. But, but again, you know, look at look at LBJ, JFK, FDR. Or, I mean, dare we say Clinton? Oh, dare we say Clinton? I mean, I, I didn't he have some narcissistic characteristics? Scott, but Clinton had all that extroversion and charm and charisma that made him super likable. And Trump's much more, he's a brawler. You know, he's a fighter. So he's not as likable unless he's on your side. Mm. Clinton is likable. Like, everyone likes Clinton. Because he's, he's got that charm and extroversion. Newt Gingrich would say, you know, I could talk to Clinton. He just, I'd just putty in his hands. Well, is Clinton just an extrovert then? I mean, what's the difference between Clinton and Trump in terms of the personality structure? Because I don't think Trump ha uh, Clinton has as much uh, antagonism. How would you judge Clinton's? I mean, does he have a stable marriage? Does he have stable financial relationships? Does he seem like an ethical gentleman? Does he seem like he's looking out for other people? Or does he seem like he looks out for himself? I mean, those are kind of the questions to ask. I mean, it's, you know, and, and, um, and, and LBJ is the one that they've done most of the work on who, who and he got mm. the most narcissistic and he was a, he was a monster pretty much, um, stories, but, the, but again, the norms of politicians have changed too. I mean, the stuff that, you know, you could get away with 50 years ago, you can't get away with anymore. Now, I don't know about that. <laughs> Have you seen our current president? <laughs> well, I mean, if you were having sex in the pool at the White House with intern, you know, I mean, it was just stuff JFK had going on. I mean, that stuff is all was all buried and they just don't bury it anymore. Everything gets well, dug up. I think that our current president gets away with a lot of stuff that maybe other presidents wouldn't get away with. You think he's having affairs? Well, in, in different ways. No, not in that regard. But in other regards, in other policy decisions. Well, he was impeached. That's true. That's, that's true. I mean, that's, but he still got away with it. 
didn't didn't matter. Well, the 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 the, the, data, the model is that narcissistic leaders get impeached. <laughs> we got impeached. So the model worked. <laughs> the model worked. Fair enough, to a certain extent. Okay, so let's move on to social media and narcissism. Now, I've been thinking a lot lately that we're we really reward on social media vulnerable narcissism these days. It seems like. You know, you get in lots of likes if you're, you know, who's suffering more right now? Who's more, whose yeah. grievance is louder than someone else's grievance? Have you noticed that? Yeah, I, I think that's actually true. And I hadn't thought about it like that um, until you said it. And I realized I have a student who studies that and looks at people talking about, you know, sort of revealing things about themselves on social media, like revealing uh, stigma, coming out videos for whatever, um, and and those are very popular. People, uh, I think they get when somebody reveals something about themselves, it's painful or shameful. People relate to that and they feel drawn to that somehow. So it seems to be something that that, that can work on social media. Um, and so it's popular more than the classic. I mean, there's the classic Instagram lifestyle influencer social media, too. But that seems like it's going away a little bit. I'm not a big social media guy, but. That's my sense a little bit. And then what about the, you, this geek culture and the great fantasy migration? What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a so, – so I had a student who was a, into LARPing, like live-action role-play, like dressing up as a druid warrior and playing games. I thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard. But you know how it is. Like you hear something crazy and then you just go, well, I better pay attention to that. Maybe there's something to it. I just don't be a jerk and listen. I listen. I'm like, it's kind of interesting. These kids are running around playing role games. And it turns out there's a huge number of young people and they're old people now too, that are engaged in geek culture and geek culture is this general. And because these geeks tracks were kind of separated at one point, they all came together to, to go to these conferences like dragon con or comic con. And so you end up with a combination of, you know, sci-fi theater nerds, anime cosplay, um, uh, you know, UFO conspiracies, all these different, <laughs> yeah. uh, all these different tracks kind of blend together and it becomes this fantasy life for people. And what's happened, obviously, economically and, and psychologically, is we took a lot of young people for a lot of decades and told them they were awesome and then said, OK, the world's not awesome. So we didn't really make it easy for them to plug in the world and actually sort of actualize their awesomeness. So instead of these people thinking they're awesome, they weren't there. So that, well, maybe some of these people are expressing their awesomeness in more fantasy realms. So... Maybe I'm not awesome in real life, but I can be awesome at avatar. cosplay. I can have an awesome avatar. I can be awesome in World of Warcraft. I can be awesome in gaming. So I can have my self-esteem needs met in yeah. sort of these fantasy worlds. And as a society, I, I sort of looked at how much acreage was being built digitally versus how much acreage was be, being built in reality. And the numbers are orders of magnitude different. And I, well, this is where everyone's going to move. They got to move online. So that was the idea of the great fantasy migration is you have all these people who can't get their ego needs met in the, in the real world. You don't want to fix the real world because you're kind of a dying empire. So you just have everyone migrate to fantasy worlds where they can get ego needs met. So that, that's the idea. Um, in the research, we did find that 
geek culture and then geek cultural engagement was related to narcissism and uh, grandiose narcissism. And people weren't happy about this, but all the data were public and they reanalyzed it like a hundred times. So I feel very confident in it. They did a lot of samples, um, but you also find vulnerable narcissism and and sort of fantasy proneness or schizotypy or that facet of openness, that more kind of odd, unusual facet of openness. So I guess it would be almost the, what do you call the aspect of openness. Um, so it's, it's an interesting combination of traits that, that puts you into that, that geek culture. If you're, if you're good with fantasy, if you're kind of a little bit insecure, a little bit narcissistic, it's, it's a bit of a pull for you. No, I'm not labeling people, by the way. I, I went down to Dragon Con just to check it out. So you've been to some of these uh, events, these nerdy events? Like I said, Scott, I, I've learned over my many years to respect things rather than and the things that I question, to give them time. I, I went to Dragon Con, and I went there with my, my young daughter just to check it out. And first thing I realized was cell, that cell phones don't work. And I was trying to find my grad students. None of the phones are working because there's so many people. So I look at these two nerds, and they've got like a ham radio CB in their backpack. And they're like, they're like helping me out. They're like nice people. Everyone's nice to me. And then I go watch this nerd parade. And there's all these costume parade and, and Batman's. They're all the different Batman coming. They're all dressed as different kinds of Batman. And I saw the Batman with the shark repellent and the surfboard from when I was a kid. And I started screaming. And everyone looked at me and they were like, shut up, nerd. So it turned out to be the biggest nerd at the whole thing. But it was cool. People were nice, having a good time, super creative. I really liked it. You know, I, I, it was an interesting, interesting experience. I just... I love uh, subcultures and it's, it's, it's such good stuff just without judgment. Yes. It's like when I can get over my like judgment that was instilled in me when I was 15 by the big kids, yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of in 1975, you know, if I can, if I can overcome that, it's probably more like 1978. Um, but I can overcome that. Uh, I can enjoy the world a lot more. Yeah, for sure. So how do we let some of us listening to this show might be like, wow, I just realized I am such a narcissist. How can we reduce? Can we, is there hope for us if we want to, if we want to actively reduce it? Most grandiose narcissists don't want to reduce it though, right? It's usually the vulnerable narcissists that want to. Yeah. The challenge is a lot of challenges there first. And I think uh, maybe you'll agree with me. I hope so. Is that what we've seen in, in the personality science in the last 10 years is that personality can change. I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of evidence that it can change and therapy is a way, but there are lots of ways. Plus it changes over time. So there's developmental effects and there's socialization effects. So I think the first thing to say is, yeah, it can change. It's not set in stone like we used to think. The second issue is you got to want to change, which is what you're running into. And what the field shows is that people are narcissistic who get into therapy can change, but the dropout rate is very, very high because people don't really want to get the negative feedback. They're like, yeah, geez, I don't really want to let go of this part of my ego. And it's sort of threatening. So they back off, especially because they're not suffering that badly. It's usually their, their, their husband's suffering, their wife's suffering, their kids are suffering. They're not suffering. Um, so then, so then if you really do want to change, what I, I say is sort of focus on the aspect you want to change. And one of the things with narcissism is people go, well, you got to bring your ego down. Well, it's hard to bring down your ego. You like your ego. So what I suggest maybe is instead of focusing on your ego at first, maybe focus on expanding your capacity for love and maybe 
you know, kind of open up that compassion part, that interpersonal part and connect with people. And over time, if you focus on that, it's not going to be as, it's not going to have as much ego threat. You're sort of working on being a little more loving person, a kinder person, but that should be a buffer for your narcissism um, over time without the threat. And the other thing I talk about a lot is passion, you know, just being passionate about what you do, doing it because you love it, not because you get a trophy, not because you want to get attention. And when you do stuff you love, your ego kind of breaks down and you bring people to you and you draw people in without having to work for it and, you know, be a carnival barker. So passion is really a good thing to, to cultivate. Um, and I would say responsibility taking. That's less fun, but accountability, you know, just being accountable, taking records, being accountable for what you do, taking a hard look at. And this is all your humanism stuff. Take an honest look at your own faults, suck it up, take a note, figure out who you are, transcend from there. Self-transcendence. Yes. Okay. Hey, W. Keith Campbell, what does W stand for? What's the, what's the deal with the W? <laughs> it stands for William. Uh, everybody in my family is named William in some form or another. So there's lots and lots of Williams. And it turns out there are lots and lots of Keith Campbells who are far more famous and successful than I am who took the name up. Rather, one clone Dolly the Sheep, you know, a lot of famous cricketers. So the W is what I got to do. Either that or I change it to be like a Hollywood guy and come up with a completely new name. Okay. Fair. Well, thanks for clearing up that great mystery. <laughs> so many, great. so many people have been have many, been wondering many about, asked about yeah. it. What's the W? Um, okay, and so we talked. We hinted at this earlier. We talked about relationships. People complain that they are with narcissistic partners, but you can have narcissistic bosses, right? Like you can you can deal with toxic people in all sorts of areas of your life. What can you do? Any tips for helping people to cope, you know, with a narcissist or deal with it or, or how to get out? You know, it's, it's when you said that, it kind of sprung to mind is we deal with toxic people all the time. The challenge is when they have power over us, whether we're in a committed relationship with, it, with us, when we're working for them. And, and that's when we want to just, so first off, try to avoid those situations. And it's the shortest answer I can give to that is look at people's history because people who are narcissistic have damaged people in the past. It will not be, you're not the first one. It's very hard to know when you meet somebody. Um, the second thing is protect yourself, keep records, be sure that the person can't damage you to the extent they can. So do a lot of self-protection and then just try to either get out of there or figure out how you can leverage the person's ego for your own benefit. So, mm, you know, you can, be, yeah. you can be a suck up, you can be a yes man, you can kind of, you know, you, you can do things like people who are narcissistic are open to manipulation because their ego is a weakness. What a great point. You know, I, so I, I look at people narcissistic, I'm like, I can deal with these people. You either give them what they want for their ego, you, you, you offer them ego, you offer to take away ego. It's a, it's a, it's a tool you can use, a lever. Um, wow, you're like outsmarting the narcissist. I don't want people to have to be in that position at all. But if people find themselves in that position, there's a way to think about it and how to use some of that narcissism for your benefit. It's hard if the person's really toxic and, you know, really a little bit disorganized and vulnerable because vulnerable narcissists, you know, you give them any feedback and they can be, become dysregulated. Mm -hmm. um, but the more grandiose forms, if you're kind of giving them their ego needs and they kind of know it, you can work with that. Okay. Well, what, what about psychotherapy for vulnerable narcissism? You know, we published this paper showing there's a lot of clinical implications of vulnerable narcissism. You know, what, what, what's the hope there for help? You know, there's 
They said there's no good RCT clinical trial on narcissism at all. Vulnerable narcissism is interesting for therapy in a couple of ways. One is a lot of people argue that vulnerable narcissism is core to a lot of mental illness. This idea of sort of this sort of uh, neurotic self-centeredness that you're, you're both anxious and depressed and really stuck in your own head. So back in the day when I was doing my master's, working on depressive mood, you find people who are depressed get a lot of self-centeredness because they're depressed, they're thinking about themselves, why me? They're not out there just looking at the birds, living their dream. That's what happy people do. You know, happy people give energy, they're abundant, they, they look at the sky. So there's vulnerabilities in a lot of things. So my, my guess is that lots and lots of therapists out there are skilled at treating vulnerable narcissism as part of cognitive behavioral therapy when they're dealing with people who are anxious and depressed and vulnerable. Mm. Meaning I bet people have tools for dealing with this because it probably comes up a lot in therapy for, like I said, depression or anxiety, um, even in BPD. So they might use some of the, you know, kind of the, I'm thinking not the mindfulness-based therapies, but maybe some like dialectic-based therapy or dialectic-based tactics for affect regulation. It's helpful for borderline. Right. So I think that might be be helpful for vulnerable narcissism because with vulnerable narcissism, you have that, that, those fluctuating grandiose fantasies. So people are vulnerable, like I'm not getting the attention I want. And then they're fantasizing like, dude, I, I, I should be getting this award. Or I should be winning this prize or I should be on this TV show or I should be a leader or have this great relationship. So they fantasize about that. And so maybe some of those more uh, mindfulness-based or dialectic-based therapies could help them deal with those two sides of their mind, kind of become comfort, you know, with those two sides, you know, hold that grandiosity with being attached. I, I don't do, you know, I'm not a therapist. I don't do this work. But when I've worked with people who do dialectic behavioral therapy, I find it very, very effective for my own anxiety and my own neuroticism. I mean, I've had it help me, you know, so I, I like those. I, sure. I like those ideas. And I think anything that comes out of working with borderline personality is probably going to be useful for vulnerable narcissism. And it may be just with some modifications for grandiosity and, and meeting some of those needs. We should talk about pathological narcissism. We didn't talk about that. NPD. That's a real, is that a real thing? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we kind of just skimmed around it. So when we when you look at NPD, you're talking about a narcissistic personality disorder in the description in the diagnostics statistics manual, the DSM four and five, and we can go into that rabbit hole if you want, but I might skip it because it probably will change again. Um, narcissism is described as a combination of grandiosity and vulnerability with a preference for grandiosity. So I kind of say it's like two-thirds grandiose, but it depends how you, you know, it's it's really crazy. You read the description of narcissism in the hand in the in the DSM, and you're like, oh, it sounds a little vulnerable. And then you read the traits and you're like, that sounds pretty grandiose. And there's a reason for that. It's because the the writing was more psychodynamic and the description and the traits were more behavioral. And so the traits captured the grandiosity. And then in the new version, they kind of flip that around. So anyhow, so that's how the NPD works. Um, the, the key to have a diagnosis of a personality disorder is you have to have impairment. It has to be a personality, but it has to have clinically significant impairment. It has to mess your life up. And so that's really the clinical uh, 
decision point is this it, not if you mess other people's lives that, that can be count that can be oh, because okay. that would be a relational impairment in oh, fact okay. that i think is the number one impairment of narcissism it's going to be interfering with interpersonal relationships but it could be cognitive distortions it could be emotional dysregulation you know could be you, you get angry when people threaten you and you always have anger issues it could be it's typically though you're screwing up your your relationships Good. I'm glad. I'm glad we. I felt remiss if we didn't cover the fact there is there is actually uh, it can reach the pathological. You know, Eric Fromm called it malignant narcissism. Yeah, and and so what people are talking about now is coming up with specifiers for narcissism, which are kind of diagnostic labels or specifications that you could use. Say, so, yeah, this person has NPD with a vulnerable specifier. So that's something right. Miller and I have sort of argued for. Um, but people have also said we should have a malignant specifier because there's a lot of people in the more psychoanalytic community that are really interested in this more psychopathic, dark, toxic, you know, malignant, yeah. narcissistic character. So they want that specifier. And there could be another specifier for sort of expressive, expressive grandiose, you know, for all the actors that kind of the Iron Man figures out there, you know, the Tony Stark kind of narcissistic figures that seem likable, except they just destroy people around them. Well, Elon Musk is must have some characteristics of grandy of I don't know. You have to, if you want to change the entire world, you have to be grandiose. <laughs> and, and I think right? you have to. I mean... But you can be grandiose and ambitious without being a narcissist. Right. right. But I'm pretty ambitious. If I took an M, well, my MPI scores are pretty low, but it's hard because I've taken it so many times. It's hard, you know, I'd probably score myself. But yeah, you can be ambitious and not be mean. You know, you can be ambitious and, 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 be, and not be scared and not be mean. And that makes you sort of fearless. And so that's going to, you're going to have some aspects of narcissism. And you could get in trouble because of it, because you're fearless. You end up cheating on your relationship or taking too big a risk or whatever. But you're not going to have those socially toxic effects that you will with the antagonism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there, what are sort of final frontiers of new treatments? A couple you mentioned I thought were fascinating were brain stimulation techniques, psychedelics, yeah. virtual reality. Are these things on the horizon to treat narcissism? Yeah. So um, – so the, I, the psychedelics are fascinating, and my my student uh, student I with Josh Miller Brandon Weiss uh, studied you know did his dissertation on ayahuasca ceremonies, and studied people going down in Peru and and Costa Rica going through these ceremonies. So we got personality data over time. So just recently, we we really focused on the big five because that's you know that's really what you want for a first stab at something. But we had some narcissism data in there. And we don't really find much. It seems like the ayahuasca ceremonies maybe help with that more vulnerable form of narcissism a little bit. Um, but the, the effects weren't huge. But the challenge was it seemed to, this is what we're talking about, it seemed to make the vulnerability a little less, but it made the grandiosity, at least the extroversion, a little more. You know what I mean? So, it kind of, yeah. so, you, so it's really like when I looked, I'm like, yeah, this isn't really... I wouldn't, this isn't a narcissism treatment. I think it's, I think it can be super helpful for neuroticism for especially trauma Neuro, yeah. and, and, and depression, anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Depression was a big thing. Uh, and again, this wasn't a clinical study. This was a looking at the personality traits, but you know, when you, we saw that the change in trait neuroticism that Brandon found was a D of about 0.8. 
what you know pre-post treatment with peer report this is pretty big effects but it, it, it again this is this one sample now could you use those same psychedelics though in in a in a directed therapeutic context and work with narcissism mm. or could you work with something like mdma which is really an empathogen in a sense yeah. Um, yeah. it's a psychedelic but it people often refer to it as an empathogen would an empathogen work with something like narcissism and that that's super interesting to me because that seems really possible if the problem is you have a lack of empathy and empathy you know an empathogen might might work in a very you know guided set and setting you know i wouldn't not not like roll and molly i don't know what the kids do i don't know what they i don't know what they call those, those drugs man it's so old i don't I just, yeah. over the hill but they must have a straight name um, but, but using these things in a really, in a controlled sentence setting, I think might be beneficial, but, but I'm not sure. Um, you know, the, the brain stuff is fascinating, but the more I talk yeah. to people about it, the more it's like, oh, we nailed it with the brain. Oh, wait, we were totally wrong with the brain. We got, you know, it's underpowered. We need to redo all these studies. And I've talked to a few people, as you probably have, who do this work seriously. And I, I don't get a lot of clear answers about neural structure circuitry and and trait level personality mm. i mean there might be something with some some neuroticism maybe people have told me but otherwise i'm just not getting the sense that there's stable signal in our research yeah i don't know too much about that yeah, yeah. my my depth of knowledge is i just find really smart people and talk to them and see what they say <laughs> <laughs> But, but there's just it doesn't seem to be stabilized. And there's some super cool work, like I reviewed a paper where they're looking at grandiose narcissism and then using machine learning to kind of predict narcissism from neural circuitry. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you know, you can see this stuff, how it could work. I just don't think we're there yet, but it's gonna be cool if we if we get there. It would be very cool. And 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 you seem pretty optimistic, you know, you end your book with a future of hope and you say i'm a big believer in natural consequences and the reality principle where narcissism thrives in the short term but fails in the long term you're an optimist it seems like in in a certain extent you see a new world someday less focused on status and more focused on creativity yeah what what makes you hopeful about that um i have to be because if i'm not helpful i'm just going to drive my minivan into a lake but other than the pure pragmatics of being optimistic is I think that that this this sort of narcissism is is exciting and fun, but it's not really satisfying. And my hope is that it kind of burns through our society and people go, you know, I had that narcissism. It was like I had a student once who 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 wrote a paper that, you know, it was actually a narcissism Facebook. This is probably 12, 13 years ago. And it just came out and it took, oh, it was the biggest story in the world. And she got to be famous. And I said, how's your fame? And she goes, that is fame is awesome. And then like a day later, she's like, fame is horrible. Fame's the worst. I get these horrible emails. I hate fame. I'm like, yeah, fame sucks. You know, it's cool, but it kind of sucks. Like you don't really want it. There's a dark side. Uh, there's a dark side to it. And I think maybe when we go through this process of ego that we start to see this dark side and people are like, you know, I had enough. It was cool. But, you know, maybe we'll get in touch. And, and, I, and I wonder if that's going to happen. I also wonder, since we're reliving 1968, maybe the psychedelic revolution will do something. Maybe that when that kicks in in a couple of years, 
that'll get people to sort of reframe their ego when they start thinking about consciousness. When we have a consciousness revolution and thinking that people are thinking about consciousness much more broadly, your little ego, your narcissism in the face of sort of massive levels of consciousness is nothing. It's trivial. And so, you know, people, there are plenty of people in those sort of in spiritual communities that are incredibly narcissistic. It's not that spirituality gets rid of ego by any means. It can be a great vehicle to expand it. Oh yeah. But my hope is with some people that will help with the suffering piece that will help with the, the sense of disconnection and maybe give people some peace. And when people have peace, they have love. And when they have love, that's pretty good. And, and status and fame aren't as satisfying as love ultimately. And that people want, that's for Eric from. No, it's just true. I, if it weren't true, I'd be, you know, I'd be shooting up fame right now. It's just not yeah. for you, man. Well, I agree That's very good. much. I very much agree with that. And yeah. you know, I think me and you have, uh, uh, we've gone on separate trajectories in our research programs, but I feel like we've converged on our love for humanistic psychology and uh and self-transcendence it's funny how we ended up here i think so too i when i teach that in class i just start laughing i'm like i love this humanism i love thinking about the self not being a, a statue you put up on a hill and praise but becoming a process that you're you know you're a river not a not a glacier and uh and so i, I like that and i think there must be something about transcending ego that makes you a little less narcissistic, but much more effective and much more engaged in the world because your ego is, isn't restricting you. You can be anything you want to be. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Rogers talked about that in the fully functioning human has that flexibility. Yes. I like that. Yeah. yeah. They're open to all of their experience. Wow. Thank you so much for being such a great friend and colleague and for really being a legend in this field. <laughs> you, you are, you know, the science of narcissism. It's almost synonymous with W. Keith Campbell. So thank you so much for uh, the chat today. Oh, thanks, Scott. This is great. I always love talking. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 